Last week we talked about the revival that broke out in Samaria. You remember Philip, who was one of the deacons, became Philip the Evangelist, and he began to preach the gospel in, in, the, in Samaria, and a great revival broke out, and we talked about how Simon the Magician, also known as Simon Magus, uh, he tried to buy the ability to uh, give the, the gift of the Holy Spirit to people, and that didn't go very well for him. And so basically, we just kind of left it off last week in the middle of that chapter, uh, and we want to get to another part that's, that's really powerful, a really powerful part of the, Philip's story. By the way, and we'll, I'll say this, uh, last week we, we talked about how the gospel went to Samaria, which was the next step in, the, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, the first part of chapter 8 was the gospel going to Samaria, which was the next step. And the second part of chapter 8 is the gospel going to the uttermost, part, uttermost parts of the earth. And so we're going to read that and you're going to see what God did. This is, I love this story. This is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. Uh, just particularly the very last part of it. Uh, I'm a Star Trek fan. Anybody, anybody here? And there's this, there's this part at the end where, where the Holy Spirit beams Philip up. And you, you know, I mean, it's, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's, it's really not exactly how it happened, but... But uh, anyway, Acts chapter 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. By the way, desert road there, it's not really necessarily talking about the fact that it was a road through a desert, although it is a very desolate area. It's really more in the sense of a deserted road, a road that has, rarely has travelers on it. It's a very... Uh, uh, lonely, uninhabited area. So he's telling them to go from Samaria down to this place. He said that, he said to the road that, that the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And another side note, not really anything that I want to spend any time talking about, but Candace was, was not her given name. That was, Candace was the title of the queen of the Ethiopians, sort of like Pharaoh was the leader, was the ruler of, of Egypt, and Candace was the queen of, of Ethiopia. That wasn't her actual given name. Uh, it'd be like somebody being given the title of king. Well, that's not their name, that's the position. So uh, anyway, it says, he was, <coughs> excuse me, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was, like, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. We'll stop right there for just a moment. <coughs> Excuse me. 
So now that Judea and Samaria had received the gospel, it was time now, as I mentioned earlier, for the gospel to begin to move outward toward the ends of the earth as it, as it was outlined in, the, in Acts chapter 1-8. And at this point in time, uh, the, the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip telling him to rise up and go toward the south to the desert road going from Jerusalem to Gaza. And, and that's interesting because, you know, well, first of all, the Bible tells of angels appearing to people really, uh, comparatively speaking, a very few times throughout the history of mankind. When you think about all the number of people that have lived and all the different times God has spoken and He has moved, there really haven't been that many moments scripturally that's recorded where an angel appeared to speak to them. So this is, must be a pretty significant moment here for this to happen. And angels, since they are spirits, God has to give them a physical form temporarily in order for them to appear and speak to people. So here this angel appears to, to talk to Philip and says, you, you need to go south and head toward the desert road going from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, there, there, is a, there may have been a special reason for sending an angel. I think part of it, a big part of it, was in the fact of everything that was going on in Samaria at the time. Because Philip, if you remember, he was in the middle of this great revival in Samaria. I mean, and so it probably took something unusual to get him to leave the crowds and to go down to this seldom used road. It was probably going to be difficult for him to, to believe that it was really God saying, leave the revival and go down to this deserted road. So an angel appeared to, to, to uh, speak to him and tell him to go down there. And so he heads down to this old road. Some believe it was the road to old Gaza because there were two different cities named Gaza. One uh, was uh, destroyed in 93 B.C. And then in 57 B.C. it was rebuilt but nearer to the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, he was probably headed toward this road toward Gaza, that this city that had been destroyed, that was deserted. And he's on his way down there. And the reality is... To go there, it must have seemed absolutely unreasonable. It didn't make any sense at all to leave this great work of God, this great revival, and go out in the middle of the wilderness. It had to seem unreasonable. But what I love is, at least in any, it, it's not recorded, but Philip, he didn't question it. He just obeyed unquestioningly. And the, the angel didn't tell him anything about God's purpose. He didn't say why he was wanting him to go down there. He didn't say, I've got something I want you to do. He just said, go down there. And that was enough for Philip. He didn't hesitate. He arose and he went in obedience with faith and with expectation. It, it really, in a way, maybe on a smaller scale, but it really reminds me of the faith that Abraham had. In, in Hebrews 11.8, we're told that by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would, he would later receive as an, his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. So it's similar to that because the, the Lord speaks through an angel to, to Philip and says, I want you to leave Samaria and I want you to go down here. Doesn't tell him why, doesn't tell him what he's going to do. He just says, go out in the, into this wilderness on this deserted road. So the reality is God was leading him. And we see that because we see the, the end of the story. See, we, we forget sometimes because we read this and we're like, oh, well, 
we know he was sending him out there because there was an Ethiopian eunuch who was going to be out on that road and he was going to have this encounter with him. But Philip didn't know that. You know, we're, we're looking at it from the perspective of, of seeing what took place, but Philip didn't know that. Uh, all he knew was that God said, go out there. But we know that God was leading him because as he's going out there, at the very time he reached the Gaza road, the chariot of an Ethiopian eunuch was approaching. Think about the amazing power of God to be able to orchestrate. And we're going to see little bits and pieces as we walk through this story about how God orchestrated all of these events for all of this to take place. But for Philip, he had to be there at the right time in order to, to, to find this, this man traveling on this deserted road, if he had gone uh, uh, later, if he had delayed and said, well, you know, I don't know if that's God or not. I'm just going to wait around and, you know, I'm going to wait for a fleece, lay a fleece before the Lord. I'm going to try to make sure this is God. If he had waited around, he would have missed it. But because he obeyed without question, the timing was perfect. And, and, and he, he, as he got there, the chariot of this Ethian eunuch was approaching. Now, we need to talk a little bit about it because... It's not necessarily a comfortable subject, but a, a eunuch was a man who was surgically castrated. That's really, you know, not something as a man that I want to talk about. Uh, but uh, in some ancient Eastern civilizations, a, a man uh, could volunteer for service in the palace, but the condition for the service often required that he surrender all or part of his, his genitals. And it served, and sometimes it was quite brutal. A significant number of volunteers did not survive the trauma. I'm just telling you this. Uh, you had to really want to work in the palace if you're, if you're willing to submit yourself to this. I think about it today, you know, for people that want to serve, you know, like in the cabinet of the White House, if they had this requirement, probably be a lot shorter line is what I'm thinking. But uh, anyway, I shouldn't even go there. Um, but, but by doing this, they were demonstrating their loyalty and love for the ruler. They're saying, listen, I, I, this is what, I, I love this nation so much, I'm willing to do this. And, and the other part of it was it had a practical purpose because that, that type of surgery virtually eliminated the most common motives for treachery and for, for treason. As a result of all of this, eunuchs became often came, became highly trusted servants of the court. Because if a man is willing to go through that to serve you, then you, you get the sense that he is going to be loyal to me. And, and in this case, the eunuch was in charge of the entire, uh, the nation's treasury. And, and you could say he was a member of the cabinet and would kind of compare to the secretary of the treasurer, Treasury, except that he had full responsibility for the care and disbursement of all the funds of the nation. Well, this particular eunuch, we're never told his name. He had come a long distance to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, uh, he, he, it's a long way from, uh, from Ethiopia, which Ethiopia the, in, in the days of Jesus and in, the, in the, this time wasn't, doesn't perfectly correlate with where Ethiopia was. It's actually... A little more uh, where Sudan, the Sudan is now, maybe overlapping parts of Ethiopia, but it's still a long travel going through Egypt all the way up to get to Jerusalem. 
And, and he, he traveled a long distance to Jerusalem to worship. And, and now the thing is, being a eunuch, he, he could not have been a full price proselyte to, to Judaism. Because Jewish law prevented eunuchs from becoming full-fledged sons of the co covenant Though he was what would be called a God-fearing Gentile, because of his being a eunuch, he was, only, he was only ever going to be allowed to go as far as the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer court in the temple. He, he would never be able to go any farther, never be able to go any, uh, into, into the courts where the men were. And he was always going to be on the outside. He was, always, he, was, he was thus an outsider forever to remain so within the Jewish system. But there was something about this Jewish God and, and, and the Jewish way of life that had attracted him. And even though he was, he was going to be an outsider the rest of his life, he wanted to know about, more about the God of Israel. And, and so as a result, he made this long journey to Jerusalem to worship. While he was there, uh, may, it may have been while he was there, he, he purchased the scrolls of Isaiah, probably some of the other Old Testament books to take back with him. Now think about this. You know, they didn't have Barnes and Noble. You know, they, they, he couldn't go online and, and, and order a book off of Amazon.com. Uh, the scrolls that they had, were, they were hand-copied scrolls, meticulously produced by Jewish scribes. And because they were, they were made this way, they cost a fortune. He invested a lot of money into getting these. In fact, they were so expensive that usually a whole synagogue would join together to buy one set of scrolls, which they would then in turn keep locked up except for use during worship and, and, and for use in the synagogue school. Everything about this man says that he was a devout worshiper of, of the Hebrew God as well as a, uh, a man of education and a man of, of means. So now he's been to Jerusalem to worship. And this eunuch is now returning home and he's sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah. Now, if you think about military chariots and you're gonna, it's going to be hard for you to figure out how in the world is he reading this this scroll while he's driving a chariot it's because there was there were two types of chariots one was the military chariot that was the one one or two man uh, chariot where somebody's driving it and it was very small but there was a larger one that would have been more it's still two wheel but more like a carriage and it was a it was a traveler's carriage or or chariot and and uh, you would have somebody driving it and you actually had a place for the passenger to sit in it and this is probably what he was doing. He was sitting in, the, in his chariot on the way home, reading these scrolls. Probably, uh, they were probably what's, uh, what was written out was probably what's known as the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation from the Hebrew into Greek, and, because that's probably what he spoke, being an educated man. He probably spoke Greek. So he's reading the, the Old Testament, and he's reading this on his way home. And, and at this point in time, the Spirit spoke to Philip. Now, it's great. This time, he doesn't need an angel. An angel doesn't talk to him this time. This time, he just speaks to him. And, and probably, you know, probably it was just the, that inner voice of the Spirit speaking to him. May have been an audible voice. We don't really know. But God did speak to him. And, and, and part of the reason he didn't need an, need an angel, because undoubtedly, 
when he gets out there and he's in the middle of, on this deserted road out in the desert, he's probably doing a lot of praying and saying, okay, Lord, what do you want? What do you have me out here for? What, what am I here for? What are you trying to do here? So he's really looking to the Lord. And, and by the way, you know, if you're needing to hear from the Lord, one of the most important things you can do is be actively listening. Be praying and saying, Lord, what are you saying? What are you trying to do? What are you, what are you at work trying to do in me and through me and around me? And if we'll pay attention and we'll actually listen for his voice, we're a lot more likely to hear it. But you know what? It was not mere chance that the eunuch was there. The truth is the Holy Spirit had arranged the meeting. I love it because God handled all the details. Anybody here... Uh, have some control tendencies in your life? Let me see your hand. Some of you are like, I'm not raising my hand because that makes, puts you in control, so I can't say that. You know, one of the hard things to do, I mean, if, you're, if, 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 if it were me instead of Philip, I might have been having a discussion with God this whole time saying, God, I don't get this. Why are you taking me down there? I need to know why. I need to know why. And the whole time God would be saying, no, you don't need to know why. You want to know why. Let's talk about the difference between want and need. That's the conversation that God would be having with me. But but you know what? Philip just left it to the Lord. And God has a way of handling the details. God was the one who set up the appointment. God was the one who timed the arrival of the Ethiopian. And God was the one who told Philip which chariot to go to and what to do when he was there. The Spirit's command for Philip was to go and to stay near this chariot. So here they are in this divine appointment. And in, in, in obedience, Philip runs up to the chariot. And as he ran alongside the chariot, he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, by the way, it was, it was uh, in those days, it was reading was almost always done out loud. So he probably had some small entourage around him and he's reading it. Everybody's hearing what he's reading and Philip runs up, kind of joins the crowd. He hears what he's reading and, and, and Philip interrupted him in the middle of his reading and he asked if he understood what he, what he was reading. And his reply was a question that Philip knew that he felt as if he was absolutely incapable, incapable of understanding it, and he needed somebody to explain it to him. Then he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. And Philip didn't need a second invitation. Now he's beginning to see what God is doing. He begins to understand that God had a plan all along and that there was a reason why God took him away from Samaria in this great revival and brought him out into the wilderness. Well, in the, in the providence of God, again, you know, you see all these things, the timing of, of Philip uh, showing up, the timing of the Ethiopian eunuch being there. And then it just, quote, happens to be that the eunuch is reading from Isaiah chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and Isaiah 53 is considered the pinnacle of all the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. And it's the place where uh, in Isaiah chapter 53 is where we, where we, I mean, we quote it all the time. That's where it talks about that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that by his stripes we're healed. All of these things are right there in Isaiah 53. And it just so happened, quote unquote, that he's reading from Isaiah 53 when Philip shows up at exactly the moment the Holy Spirit directed him to show up. 
And it, that must have been exciting to Philip. Can you imagine that moment as Philip, as Philip is doing what the Lord tells him to do, and all of a sudden he, he runs up to this chariot and he realizes, wait a minute, this guy's reading from Isaiah, and I know this passage because Jesus himself taught from it, and he said that this was being fulfilled in him. I know exactly what this passage is about. And so he asked him, he said, well, do you know what you're reading? And he said, and the eunuch asked Philip, he said, who is the prophet talking about? And his question shows that he had been considering Isaiah 53 earnestly, but he was not satisfied with any of the interpretations he'd heard. And there were different interpretations about Isaiah 53. There still are among the Jewish people. Uh, Jews at this time did not apply it to the Messiah. They didn't see it as, as, as applying to a suffering Messiah. Uh, they, some of them, uh, even today, they still say, well, it's, it's really the nation of Israel that's suffering. But the Jews of Jesus' day, they never considered, never crossed their mind that it would be talking about the Messiah because they, in their mind, they saw the Messiah as a, as a warrior king and, and that he would vanquish Israel's foes and lead them into prosperity and he would rule from the throne of David forever, which that was all true. That was all true, but because that's what Jesus is going to do. But, but they didn't see the, 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 what was going to lead up to that. Uh, you know, when you talk about prophecy, prophecy is always, um, it's always impossible to interpret perfectly until it's in the rearview mirror. Uh, but when you're looking ahead, you can see what it's talking about, but, but sometimes the timing, you can't really understand that. I'll give you, I'll give you a, an illustration uh, we lived in Reno, Nevada for eight and a half years, something like that. And Reno, Nevada sits at the base of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And if, if you've ever uh, been in the mountains or driven uh, through the mountains or even driven up to the mountains, one, you'll, one of the things you'll, you'll, you'll understand is that when you look at that, you see this, this mountain there and you see different mountain peaks and you look at them, but you have no perspective of how far they are. So you'll drive up and you finally get to the first mountain and you get up to the top of the mountain of that first mountain and you look up and you realize that other peak that you've been looking at is hundreds of miles away still yet, but when you were looking at it from a distance, they looked really close together. That's kind of how it is with prophecy with these with these Old Testament prophecies, they were looking at it, and there's prophecy that talks about Jesus being the king that was going to rule on the throne of David forever. And there's this peak here, but there's this other uh, prophecy about Jesus suffering, and it's right here. And they thought they were, you know, all these prophecies were all close together, but the reality was, here's this one, here's this one. And there's time separating them. And, and so they, they, didn't, they never crossed their mind that this could possibly talk about the Messiah because all they saw was the peak that talked about Jesus being this, this great king of Israel. And, and so they ruled out any thought of the Messiah being the suffering servant that's described in Isaiah 53 because after all, how could a dead man vanquish any foe or rule from any throne? And no one in Jesus' day had considered the possibility that, that the Messiah might die to save his people and then rise from the dead to become the everlasting king. Never crossed their mind. 
Some of them applied the passage and they said, oh, it's talking about Isaiah. See, I, uh, Isaiah, I mean, he, had be, he, had, he became a martyr. And Jewish tradition says that Manasseh had sawn him in half. But, but, you know, the reality was Isaiah had position and he had wealth and he had free access to the king's palace. He's not the, the, the humble sufferer of I, Isaiah 53. Other people said, well, it's talking about Jeremiah, who suffered more than any other Old Testament prophet. But the problem is, is that Isaiah 53 says that the one who's suffering uh, did not open his mouth and did not complain. But when you read Jeremiah, you'll find out that he opened his mouth quite, mouth quite often and complained quite often. Isaiah 53 speaks of the one who suffers wholly for the sins of others and not for any sins of his own. And the eunuch read this and he knew no one who could, who could do that. And he was puzzled to figure out who in the world this could be talking about. Well, this was Philip's great opportunity. And beginning at that very scripture passage, this spirit-filled, spirit-led evangelist told him the good news about Jesus and told him that he was the the, the one that was going to, that, that, that had suffered. He, he was the Lamb of God. And, and, and that Jesus alone never sinned and never did anything to, to deserve suffering and death. But Philip, he, he, he starts there because he didn't just stay in Isaiah 53. It says that he started with that. And he began at Isaiah 53 and went on to explain the gospel further with its commands, with its promises, with its call to repentance. It would have been very similar message to what Peter would have preached in Acts chapter 2. And he made it clear that without Jesus, no one can properly understand the Old Testament scriptures and no, no, man, no one can come to the Father and no one can be saved outside of Jesus. So let's keep reading. Verse 36. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. So the Holy Spirit must have helped the eunuch to understand the gospel, which you understand that when we come to the Lord and we accept the gospel, that's because the, the, that God has enabled us to receive that. He's given us the faith even to receive that gospel. And so he has accepted the way of salvation. And as Philip and, and the eunuch went down the road, they came, came to some water. And the eunuch called the attention to it. And the word that says there where, it says, where he, says, uh, he, he says, look, here is water. The word translated look indicated, indicates something unexpected. See, most of southern Palestine is dry and desert-like, uh, you know, very desolate. And, and, and God, think about this. I want you to, you just want you to see everything that God did. God in his sovereignty had provided water in the middle of the desert unexpectedly at just the right place along their journey so that the Ethiopian could get baptized as he gave his life to Jesus. One thing after another. And the eunuch did not want to pass by the water without being baptized. And he, he put his request in the form of a question. He said, why shouldn't I be baptized? The, the literal question, the literal translation is what prevents me from being baptized? Now remember this. Think about this. I told you this earlier. In the Jewish faith, in Judaism, he would never be fully accepted. He could never go into the 
into the, to the court of the men. He was always going to be an outsider. He's probably afraid that his being a Gentile and his being a eunuch might bar him from this salvation just like it barred him from most of the, of the Jewish worship. He's saying, okay, what, what's going to keep me out? And Philip said, listen, do you believe in Jesus? He asked for a, a confession of faith. And then after commanding the driver of the chariot to stop, they both left the chariot, went down into the water. Then Philip baptized him, and they came up out of the water. And the language makes it clear that the word baptize has its usual meaning of immerse or to submerge or to dip under. And there are many other passages that make it clear that immersion was the practice of the early church. And that's why when we baptize, we, we immerse. We take you, we dunk you is what we do. Verse 39, and this part I like, this, this part, there's just different things about it just really get me. It says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. <laughs> there's so many things about that. First of all, this is the part where, where the Lord beams Philip away, you know, Think about this. You're getting baptized. Here's this man in the water with you baptizing you. And as you come up, he's gone. I don't know about you, but that would kind of freak me out a little bit. But not this guy. He's like, hallelujah, I'm saved. Let's go. <laughs> and that's all it was. So it says, Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So after they come up out of the water... The Spirit took charge and with power snatched away Philip. Luke does not explain how the Spirit took Philip away. He doesn't explain what it looked like. He doesn't explain any of those details. But the verb that he uses here usually means to snatch away. It's a word that means to carry something away by force. It's the same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 when it talks about the rapture of the church. It's the same word used in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul describes when he was caught up into, he into the heavens. In, in any case, the, the eunuch saw Philip no, no more, but as a child of God, he just went on his way rejoicing. And apparently, the Holy Spirit gave Philip a supersonic ride over to, this, to the coast city of Azotus, which was about 18 miles north of Gaza, 55 miles south of Caesarea, where it says he appeared, or a way to translate it, he was found, or he found himself, also indicating suddenness and unexpectedness. So, so it's not just the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip's there, he's baptizing the eunuch, and next thing he knows, he's like, where am I? <laughs> How did I get here? It's, and there's something I've always wondered about. It means nothing, but it just tickles me. And, and, and here's my question. When the Holy Spirit supernaturally transported Philip from the water in the desert in the, it, uh, uh, to, to the city of, of Azotus, suddenly finds himself, I just picture him standing there on a street corner in that city, and he looks around and, and realizes where maybe he had to ask, he said, where, where, where am I? What city is this? And they say Azotus, and he suddenly realizes where he is. That the thing I can't help but wonder 
is, is was he still wet? <laughs> That's what I want to know. But we're not told. We're not told. Well, from there, Philip proceeded northward along the Mediterranean coast, preaching the gospel in all the towns and, that he came to until he came to the city of Caesarea. And evidently he made that his home and his headquarters from that point on because we don't hear about Philip again until Acts chapter 21. Uh, and, and, we, and he's still living in Caesarea 20 years later and we're told about daughters that he have, has, ha, that, he has that are prophetesses. And, uh, but, but he still traveled around and became known as Philip the Evangelist. Now, that's the story. What I want to take a little bit of time talking about is about some lessons that we can learn from Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian about evangelism. Because there's some things in the story that if we get this, the Lord can use us more effectively to spread the gospel. The first thing is this. Be sensitive to God's leading. I mean, put yourself in Philip's sandals. Philip, you know, is sensitive to God's leading. Here he is. He's in the midst of this super exciting ministry in Samaria, enjoying incredible success. The church is growing. Everything's on fire. I mean, he probably had the best worship team in town. Well, he probably had the only worship team in town. But, um, uh, you know, lives are being changed and families are, are being brought together and Ill illnesses are being healed and entire villages are, are turning to follow Jesus Christ. I mean, they are in revival. And suddenly, in the middle of all this, an angel shows up from the Lord and says, leave all of this and go to a lonely road in the middle of nowhere. Philip didn't argue or resist. He just obeyed. See, Philip had the sensitivity to go where God led him. And we, we need to be sensitive to God's leading to be effective witnesses. Effective witnesses, listen... Effective witnesses don't just accidentally arrive on the scene at the right time. God leads them where they, they, meet, uh, where they need to be as they meet regularly with God and seek His guidance and counsel and listen for His voice and walk in obedience. And we, we've got to let the Spirit of God move us when the time is right. Be sensitive so that you can be where God wants you to be at the right time so that you can make a difference in somebody's life. Second thing, don't just be sensitive, be available. Be available to God. Philip, Philip was available. He left immediately. He didn't argue with God about it. He didn't know where God was sending him, but God did, so he said, that's good enough for me. He was sending Philip out to meet an Ethiopian official. Listen, at the precise moment of that man's greatest need and his greatest openness to the gospel. At the moment when he needed to hear the gospel, that that was the moment he was going to be most open to receive it. The Holy Spirit knew that. And he sent Philip from this great revival down to the desert to reach this one man, which, by the way, speaks to us about the value that God places on one person. He, 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 he didn't say, oh, there's so many people getting saved in Samaria. Uh, you know, there's just one down there. Let's not worry about it. But, the, but God, through the Holy Spirit, sent Philip away from the many to find the one. Now, tradition tells us that 
that that Ethiopian eunuch became eventually became an evangelist in Ethiopia and carried the gospel there. But we don't really know anything more about him. But, but, but Philip left the many to go to, to the desert to find the one that tells you how much God loves the one. He, the shepherd, he's the good shepherd that leaves the 99 to go find the one. But, you know, as Philip was available, we must be available. Here's what we need to understand. This is hard for us, in, especially, I think, in our culture. God does not look for ability. It's not what he's after. He looks for availability. You know what availability means? Think about that. You're availing your abilities. You're not saying, okay, God, I want that ability. I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to, I want to be up front. I want to do this. I want to do that. You're just saying, God, whatever I can do, I'm making, I'm giving it to you. He's not looking for ability because the reality is if the work of the gospel, if the work of the kingdom was dependent upon your and my abilities, the problem with that is that in the end, we would be able to stand up and brag about how our abilities brought people into the kingdom of God. And God will not share his glory with any man. You know what availability? Availability is sensitivity's twin. Because it does no good to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit if you don't make yourself available to the Holy Spirit. Follow God's leading. And you know what? Sometimes where God takes you, sometimes it's going to feel like a demotion. Don't you think it would have felt like that to, to you if you were Philip? From this great revival out to a small workout in the desert? But follow his leading, even if it feels like a demotion. At first, you may not understand his plans, but the results will prove that God's way is right. If we're sensitive and available, then he will send us to people in their moment of greatest need and in their moment of greatest openness. He will set, I mean, we, we've talked about how all the different bricks and all the different pieces fell into place at just the right time in just the right way. If God can do that, then he can still do that now, which means that if we will be sensitive and available to the Holy Spirit, then he will, he will cause our paths to cross the path of another person at just the right time when they're the most open to the gospel, when they need Jesus the most, when they're hurting the most, and, and everything will be just You'll be there at the right place at the right time, not because you did anything, but just because you were sensitive and available to what God was doing. The third thing, be proactive. Philip was proactive. At the Spirit's leading, he took the initiative and ran up to this man's chariot. All right? You know, the Lord told him what to do, but Philip had to do it. He had to be proactive in it. He, he didn't know. He ran up. He didn't know what he was going to find, you know, and he discovered this guy reading aloud from Isaiah 53. And in that moment, Philip saw an opportunity in the man's reading material. And he asked a simple, unobtrusive, non-threatening question. Do you understand what you're reading? And, and we need to be proactive. The Holy Spirit will lead us and he will prompt us to reach out to people. It, 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 but it takes initiative to break the silence barrier. 
He can say to us, listen, I want you to go. He, he can speak to you specifically and say, I want you to go sit next to this person. I want you to have lunch with this person. I want you to do this. But he, he can't. We have to take the initiative to break the silence in that moment. Now, listen, we don't want to be obnoxious. You know, Jesus, we don't need any, any <laughs> I've said it like this before. It's one of my favorite phrases. We don't need Jesus jerks. You know, we don't need people being out there being obnoxious for Jesus and, 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 and because it makes them feel spiritual in doing it. But at the same time, we can't always just lie back and wait for people to ask us for help. Because you, you know what? They don't know what they don't know. They're not going to ask about what's missing when they don't know that anything's missing. All they know is they're miserable. And they don't know anything more than that. And when the opportunity arises, we must take the initiative, make the most of every opportunity. That's what Paul said in Colossians 4. He said, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. He will set up the moment. He will set up the divine appointment. He will give the opportunities. But it's up to us to be proactive in that moment and to be, and to be, uh, um, to be proactive in our obedience to the gospel and the call on our lives to, t- to take the gospel. Number four, be tactful. Anybody here struggle with tact? Thank you for being honest, Chuck. <laughs> Philip was tactful. When Philip greeted the Ethiopian official, he did not hit him with 17 theological positions on Isaiah 53. Listen, you know, Philip, he knew a lot about the faith. If he wanted to, he could run, he could have run intellectual circles around that man. He could have dizzied him with his intellect. He could have, he could have shown him everything that he knew and threw all these facts out there. But his initial question was gentle and was gracious. And he just said, Do you understand what you're reading? Then you know what he did? Here's the hard one. He waited for the man to answer. He simply waited for the opportunity and the invitation and then came up alongside and told him the good news. And we've got to learn to be tactful. Here's what I know. I've learned this over the years because I've tried most of these methods. People don't respond to being, quote, preached at. People people don't respond when you hammer them over the head. They, They don't. Can I tell you this? Don't blame the lost person for being offended if you're offensive. But we, we must be gentle and gracious while we speak truth. That's, the, that's what Jesus, he was the embodiment of grace and truth. And that's what we must do. We must speak the truth, but always do it with grace and with mercy and with gentleness. Uh, we, we need to learn to connect on a personal level, looking for opportunities to address a need that they might have. Here's the thing. Until you get to know somebody, you're not going to understand what their needs are, and you're not going to be able to, to share with them how Jesus can meet that need. Right? So we need to learn to we, we need to learn that we have to earn the right to be heard. And earn the right to ask personal questions. Because listen, when you're when you if you're going to talk about spiritual 
issues. If you're going to ask about spiritual issues in their life, that is very personal. But we earn the right to ask personal questions by becoming a friend, by, by getting to know people, by listening to what they have to say. That's a really hard one for us, a lot of us in the room, because if you're like me, sometimes while they're talking, instead of listening, I'm actually spending the time thinking about what I'm going to say in response. Anybody here? Okay. We, we earn the right by hearing them when they talk. Because here's the thing. You know Jesus. You know the truth. You know the gospel. But people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Respond with grace and with gentleness to areas of people's needs. Get to know them. See where they're hurting. Find out what's going on in their life. And then you are there to be a witness for Jesus to say, listen, I, this is what I know Jesus can do for this area of your life because I've walked down this road and here's what he did for me. Number five, be precise in your message. Here's what I mean. Philip was explicit and exact. You know what Philip talked about? He told this, this politician about Jesus. Plain and simple. He didn't talk about the great work that was going on in Samaria. He, you know, he didn't, this was the Ethiopian was in charge of the, 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 the finances of the kingdom. He didn't talk about the financial conditions in Ethiopia. How's inflation over in Ethiopia? How are things going over there anyway? He didn't discuss theological issues. He didn't talk about social problems. He didn't argue over religious differences. He simply presented the story of Jesus to this man who was hungry to learn more about Jesus. And we've got to learn to be precise with our message. Tell people about Jesus. That's what they need. They don't need your opinions. They don't need your opinions on what's going on in society. They don't need your, your, your theological arguments. I have never yet seen anyone argued into the kingdom. Does that mean you should not study and, and be able to defend your faith? That's not what I'm saying at all. Absolutely you should. You need to know what you believe, but you also know, need to know why you believe it. You need to be able to defend your faith so that if somebody it comes to attack that, as you defend the faith, somebody else hears that what you have, what you, the faith that you hold is reasonable. It is not just a, a walk in the dark, a blind leap in the faith. But that's not our message. Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about what Jesus has done for you. Don't get sidetracked into other issues. And let me tell you something. When you talk about Jesus and who he is and why he came to this earth and the sacrifice he made, inevitably uh, the, the person you're talking to very often will try to change the subject to other controversial issues. Because... If they, if they don't, then they have to deal with the gospel issue in their life. See, that's, that's the woman at the well. Jesus began to, you know, speak to her and speak truth to her. And she, he said, you know, yeah, it's true. You know, you're not, you're not married uh, because you've had five husbands and the one you're living with is not your husband now. All of a sudden she said, I, oh, wait a minute, I see that you are a prophet the, the Spirit of God, you know, must rest upon you. 
And what did she do? She didn't, she didn't go into that line of, of, of reasoning saying, well, what do I need to do to make my life right? She immediately said, well, the Jews say we should, we should worship in Jerusalem and Samaritans say we should worship on Mount Gerizim. What do you say? She wanted to immediately go into a, the controversial issue of the day, the religious controversy, and say, well, what about this then? Instead of dealing with the issue that, that he was trying to deal with. And so people will try to sidetrack you. I don't mean to be the weirdest thing. It can be everything. I mean, I've had people say, when I was talking to them about Jesus, I've had people say, okay, yeah, well, what about dinosaurs? Where, where are dinosaurs in the Bible? It's like, what does that have to do with Jesus? I mean, I can talk to you about that later, but first let's finish this conversation. I want to talk to you about what Jesus, who he says he is, and what he did, and what he's done in my life. Just present the story of Jesus to people who are hungry. See, the, the Lord is in the business of bringing people into his family by means of human mouths and human hands and human lives, even though we are imperfect. God has called us to spread the gospel around the world. We are his hands, we are his feet, we are his mouthpieces, and we are sent to this world to touch the lives of people around us every day. And I'm going to close by asking this question. What are you hearing? What are you hearing? What are, you, are you paying attention to what you're hearing? At the office, when you hear, I'm worried about my job, I'm worried about my future, I'm worried about my marriage, Worried about my child. I'm scared of dying. That could be your passing chariot. An open door for the good news of the gospel. At school, when you hear, I hate myself. Nobody likes me. I'm just not sure what life is about. Where, what, what does God have to do with all this? That could be your passing chariot. An open door for the good news of the gospel. Anywhere you are in life, in your neighborhood, at the gym, probably not too many of us go to the gym. I'm just, you know, not me anyway. Uh, But wherever you are, when you hear, my husband's in the hospital. My my child has really, really been causing problems in the home. My my cancer is back. My wife is, is leaving me. That could be your passing chariot, an open door for the good news of the gospel. That's the moment in the place of crisis, in the moment of need, where that person's most open to hearing the gospel and Jesus can come into that situation and he can make a difference in their life. He can save them. He can restore marriages. He can heal bodies. There's, that is the moment that we need to listen. We need to pay attention. Philip heard the man speaking, reading from Isaiah 53, and he responded to what he heard. And so I challenge you as the people of God, pay attention to what you hear around you. Pay attention when people are saying what's going on in their life and realize that could be a door that God's trying to open. That could be your passing chariot. That could be their moment to find Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I come to you and I thank you, Lord.